Well, how many times has this happened to you? You're reading your Bible, and the name or identity of some person jumps off the page, and you wonder, well, where did this person come from, and what happened to them? This happens all the time. Sometimes these people play a really important role in the gospel story, and yet we don't have a lot of information about them. Well, the Passion Week narrative is filled with these types of characters who, who come and go in the story, but we don't know a lot about them. Simon of Cyrene is a, is a good example, the man that is compelled to carry the crossbeam for Jesus up to Golgotha. The unnamed thief who is crucified on one side of the Lord is another one. The Roman soldier who is overseeing the crucifixion site and at the death of Christ declares his divine nature. All fascinating characters, but to me, the one that stands out the most is this man we know as Barabbas. Now, John doesn't give us a lot of information about Barabbas, uh, but you might recall at the end of last week's passage, here's what we read. It said, Pilate went out to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in Jesus, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release to you the king of the Jews? And we know how the story goes. The crowd said, not this man, but give us Barabbas. Barabbas, who is this guy? Now, Matthew adds a little bit of color to his life. He calls him notorious, which is a great word. But it's Mark who gives us the most detail about what he's accused of. Here's what Mark says. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. So it's interesting to note that basically both Barabbas and Jesus are accused of the same crime. Insurrection, or if you prefer, sedition against the state. Both of these men are said to be a threat to Rome. So on one level, you could say that this story is an exchange, a prisoner swap, if you will, and yet there's so much more going on behind the scenes. Put yourselves again, as we talk about often, about in the sandals of a first century person. Put on the sandals of a first century person. Consider the question, what do you think Barabbas was thinking about on this morning? When he wakes up in a Roman jail cell, what's going through his mind? He's expecting this may be the last day that I have on the earth. It's just a matter of time before the soldiers come and they drag me away to execution. He has no hope whatsoever. All he can do is imagine what's to come, the the flogging, the mocking, this slow, agonizing death. And yet, by the end of this day, he is going to be free, back with his family and friends celebrating the Passover. What a turnaround. Have you ever wondered what happened to this guy? What happened to Barabbas? Was he even grateful? Did he slow down long enough to consider how this other man, Jesus, was nailed to the cross that was assigned for him? Or did he simply go back to his life of crime? We just don't know. But we'll come back to him later in the message because he is so important in this story. So grab your Bibles. If you haven't done so already, let's go to John chapter 19. So last week we talked about the six phases of this one trial. Six phases of one extended trial that Jesus had to endure before going off to crucifixion. First of all, we looked at the Jewish aspect of that trial, phases one two and three before Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. And then we shifted into the Gentile aspect of the trial, phases four and five, the first one before Pontius Pilate, the second one before Herod Antipas, who was the Tetrarch of Galilee at the time, 
And now this morning, we're going to finish the story with phase six, the final phase, after Antipas sends Jesus back to the praetorium to stand before Pilate once again. And of course, Pilate, as we saw last Sunday, is the prefect over Judea. Now, as we saw last Sunday, Pilate has gotten himself into a very sticky situation. This prisoner that's been brought to his doorstep, this Jesus of Nazareth, is in every way a political hot potato. And he knows it. Pilate's been very careful how he handles the situation. Remember, he's already on thin ice with the powers that be back in Rome, with the emperor Tiberius, because of a number of historical, cultural, religious mistakes, gaffes that he has made in the past that have bothered the Jewish people. So in the midst of trying to administer Roman law, he's trying to balance two things. On the one hand, to acknowledge the chief priest's concerns about this Jesus, but on the other hand, not allowing himself to be pushed around in public so that he loses his authority as prefect. So far, this Jewish delegation that is on his doorstep has taken a very hardline stance against him. There is something about this prisoner that has them very worked up. And although he's already convinced Jesus is not a threat, he's not guilty in some way, certainly doesn't deserve death, he believes that there's something religious going on behind the scenes that as a Roman, he just doesn't fully understand. Why do they want him dead so badly? And so as a last-minute ploy, he's just offered the Jews this choice. Right? Do you want Jesus, the king of the Jews, or do you want Barabbas? And to his surprise, they pick Barabbas. That did not work. And so that's where we left off last Sunday. Now, before we get into our verses for today, I want to point out a couple of historical things that are going to come up in our text. Uh, I want to take the next five minutes or so to do our, our whole you know, map and photos and archaeology bit so we can set the stage. We're not going to do any media on Good Friday. That's not the appropriate day to do that. So we're going to get it all out of our system this morning. Amen? Okay. So if you glance down to the end of verse 13, you're going to see two locational terms that we should see. First of all, there's something John calls the pavement. <laughs> Interesting, right? I have pavement outside my, in my backyard, so I'm not sure what that means. But then the Hebrew, he says, is something referred to as Gabbatha. Now, what on earth is that? So let's look at our map that we've been looking at throughout this whole time in the Passion narrative. Just uh, You see the Temple Mount up here. We talked about the Antonia Fortress. In the purple rectangle, we located the traditional site for the house of Caiaphas, the light blue dot, and then we have Herod's palace in that green rectangle. I made the case last week that I'm convinced by the archaeology that's happened in Jerusalem over the last 40, 50 years that it's Herod's palace, not the Antonio Fortress, where Jesus was actually trialed, that that is the true location of the praetorium. And then here's a picture of the, the, uh, the uh, Jerusalem model, first century Jerusalem in Israel today that we're going to see. And you can see where the Temple Mount is. You can see where the Antonio Fortress is. And you can see this massive complex, this compound that Herod built for himself that Pontius Pilate has moved into. Whenever he leaves Caesarea, comes to Jerusalem for the high holidays, high holidays this is where he stays. This, I believe, is where the Praetorium is. And then we, we talked about how uh, archaeology has uncovered that, that in this day there was a, a, a staircase and a gate right in this spot where, where you see that blue arrow is. That, that that is actually where the trial of Jesus takes place, outside of this western wall of the city. Um, and I'll, I'll give you... 
Here's the, pictures of, here's the pictures of the Herodian stones that they've uncovered just in recent decades that show us that there was at one time a monumental gate here and a stairway. And so for a long time, scholars said, well, clearly Jesus must have been tried at the Antonia Fortress. That's where the Roman soldiers are. But, but all of that scholarship is being reversed these days, and people are starting to say, no, it happened outside the city walls on the western side of the city. Now let me give you a drone shot, overhead drone shot, of where this is. You see the yellow circle there? You see the Golden Dome? That's where the Temple Mount is. And now we're on the western side of the city, and you see all of this, all of this stuff against the wall that's been uncovered. It was underground. It's been uncovered in recent decades. That blue arrow is pointing to the area basically where the chief priests would have stood, where this crowd is going to gather and shout, Crucify Jesus, right in that area. It makes me laugh. There's a parking lot now. Where, uh, where Herod's palace once was. That's just the way Jerusalem goes. But you can see some of the, uh, just some of the size of it and the uh, archaeology. And then I get, showed this last week. This is basically an artist's rendering of what this trial might have looked like, again, outside the city wall with a monumental gate and a stairway. And what you see there are two platforms, right? A lower platform and an upper platform. And again, scholars are coming to believe that this upper platform is this pavement in John 19, this, this Gabbatha. And it makes sense because the word Gabbatha in Hebrew, the root word of that means to be high or to be raised up. So it makes sense that this is where Pilate's judgment seat was located on some type of an upper platform. Anyway, so that's just to give you, again, an image of what we're talking about in terms of the trial. Now, because we're not going to do any media on Good Friday, I also want to show you two more things. Where is Golgotha in relation to Herod's palace? What is the path that Jesus had to walk from this site up to Golgotha. Well, let me go back to the map real quick. You see, what I did was, is I gave you the, the location of the first century walls in red there, in those thick red lines. That's the first century wall. Today, there's walls outside of that, so it can be a little confusing when you go to Israel. But that red dot is where Golgotha is, just outside the city walls on the western side of the city. So again, there's Herod's palace. There's the blue arrow. So that's the path that Jesus is going to take. Now, it's entirely possible that Jesus walked to Golgotha completely outside the city walls. Oftentimes when it's shown in movies, he's walking through a city, right? And you've got people lined up on both sides of the road. And even in Israel today, the Via Dolorosa, I don't think it's accurate. I think it's traditional. I think it's very Roman Catholic. I don't think it's accurate. Now, it's possible that he went at one point into the city through the Jaffa Gate, which is located here, and then out the Garden Gate. That's possible, but it's also possible that he was outside the city walls the entire time. So again, back to the drone shot now. We see, see the, you see the Temple Mount here. There, the red circle, that is the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. When you go to Jerusalem, you have this golden dome, and you have the gray dome. And it's dome wars between the Christians and the Muslims. I mean, literally. It's literally why the Muslims put gold on their dome, because they saw the gray dome and said, we need to be better than that. It's, it's a reality. So you can see how close Golgotha is to this, this place that we believe is the Praetorium and where they, he would have walked to. So for those of you who are going to Israel in November, we will visit that excavation site of Herod's palace, and then we will walk that path to Golgotha, which is just a short distance from our hotel. Okay, that's your lesson for this morning. 
Let's look at the text. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to take it down so you don't get lost in the picture. Uh, let's look at verse 1, chapter 19, verse 1. And what we're just going to do is work our way through this story. We'll make some observations at the end, but work our way through the historical aspect of the story. Verse 1, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him or had him flogged. Now, this, this seems a little out of the blue, doesn't it? Remember, Pilate just came out and said, I find him not guilty. I find no guilt in him. And now the Jews cry out for Barabbas. And now he takes what I think is a strange action by saying, all right, I'm going to go off and flog him. I'm going to have him tortured. Why, Why beat and whip an innocent man? Well, I think this tells us just how desperate Pilate is feeling at this point. He is now trying to satisfy the bloodlust of these chief priests and the crowd that is gathering. He's thinking, maybe if I just punish this guy, they'll be satisfied. And then I can release him. In fact, Luke sort of reports something to that effect. He says, Pilate said to the crowd, I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him, is the word that Luke uses. I will punish him and release him. That's the plan now. So we've seen Pilate walk through all these different steps of trying to release Jesus, and nothing is working. What does this mean for Jesus in terms of going off to be flogged? Well, from a variety of historical sources, we know a lot about how the Romans viewed things like law and order and punishment. They were very effective, very effective at establishing punishments that would deter criminal activity, especially sedition. They were good at public spectacles that would be a warning to to all the other people. So with scourging, this is one of their favorite tools, there were were different levels of scourging. On the first level, there was sort of this idea, we're going to punish a petty criminal, what they would call a troublemaker. And that would be a less severe beating, although none of us here would want to go through this, but a less severe beating, just enough to draw blood and leave a few nasty marks as a reminder. At other times, scourging was used for more serious cases, or we hate this as Americans, to extract confessions out of people. And in such a case, that scourging would go on longer and it would be more severe. And then there's the third level. This is the one that we're most familiar with. The worst level of scourging reserved for capital punishment cases. In those types of cases, the scourging was literally designed to dehumanize this person and to hurt them so badly that they would die quicker on the cross, that they would would just be so weakened. And and many of the prisoners who underwent this, uh, this last type of scourging never made it to the cross. They just died in custody. They died from the beating or they were unconscious before they were dragged off to execution. The usual instrument used by the soldiers was a short whip with several braided leather strips. And what they would do is they would tie in small bits of bone and lead into those leather strips. And then the victim would be tied with his entire backside exposed. And then two soldiers, one from each side, would take turns whipping so that the entire body would be struck. The point of the iron and the bone was to cause deep contusions and lacerations, to tear into the underlying muscle and to produce ribbons of bleeding flesh. And so the pain and the blood loss would then send the prisoner into circulatory shock. And the extent of that would determine how long they would be able to survive on the cross. It's an awful thing. Even to this day, people who study these things say Roman crucifixion was as bad as it gets in terms of pure torture. Now, I'm convinced that Jesus endured two floggings. 
Two separate floggings. The one mentioned here in John 19 is, is just the first. And this is the, the lighter form of punishment, although, again, we wouldn't want, not want to go through it. But later, after the sentence of death is announced, he will also go through this most severe form of scourging before crucifixion. And so it's, I think, the combination of the, of the two floggings, all of the trauma that he experiences, that tells us why he can barely make it to Golgotha and that they have to compel this other person to step in and carry the weight of the crossbeam. So the Romans tortured my Lord. And uh, I, was, I can't tell you how many times I, I just cried in writing the sermon because it hurts my heart to think about it. If it doesn't hurt your heart, your heart's not beating. That they tortured my Lord. But I understand it too. I know that the scourging is part of the Father's plan. I know that Jesus himself voluntarily accepted it. It's still really hard for me. I also know that the, the, this part of the passion narrative had been prophesied. That it would come to pass. Isaiah, 700 years before the word took on flesh, he says these famous words. He says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed, esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. That's just the truth. It had been prophesied that it had to happen this way. But I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to the first scourging before we get to that awful moment. Look at verse 2 because the pain and suffering is, is just beginning. Verse 2, Jesus is scourged and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, put a purple robe on him, and they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Mocking the Son of God, taunting him. This kingly robe, which was probably nothing more than a faded military cloak, they threw it around his shoulder and they put this makeshift crown and pushed it down on his head with, if you've ever seen a date palm, with these long, sharp thorns that dug into his scalp caused blood to drip down his neck and his face. Imagine the pain. And it's all designed to humiliate the prisoner and to gratify the soldier's lust for violence. And you can, you can picture them walking up to, to Jesus in this state that he's in and, and, and saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And giving him a fake salute and face, false worship and then slap him across the face and laugh as they go along. And in a way, it's a mockery of the entire Jewish people. Oh, you're king. This is the best king you, you Jews can ever produce. It's awful. How is it possible that such cruelty can exist? We know how it's possible because the Bible tells us all about human nature. Romans 3 lays out the indictment against man. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their past. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the depravity of the world around us, folks. We can try to soft pedal it. We can try to butter it up. But that is the reality of natural 
man and woman. Are we not seeing it more and more in our world today? If that depravity is not restrained, it's incredibly dangerous. If that depravity is encouraged and given permission, it is both cruel and deadly. And that's what we see in this part of the story. Friends, never underestimate the inherently wicked nature of man. Just, look at, just a cursory look at history will tell you how cruel and dangerous men can be when they're given power over other people. We're very blessed in America for now to not have to deal with that. For these soldiers who are bored, sitting in their military barracks, looking for fun, they come up with a torturous game for the spectacle, for the glory, for the humiliation, for the agony. But remember, Jesus said this was Satan's hour, right? None of this is a surprise to God. It's not a surprise to him. Still feels every bit of it. But go back in your mind to Genesis 3. This is the hour prophesied for the serpent to bruise the heel of the Savior. It's happening. Everything from Genesis 3, it's happening right here. And God the Father not only allows it, his scriptures tell us he causes it. He causes it. Back to Isaiah 53. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on his son. In his writings, J.C. Rowell describes some of the takeaways we get from this. He says that Jesus, the innocent man, wore a crown of thorns so that we, the guilty, might wear a crown of glory. That he was clothed with a robe of shame so that we might be clothed with his righteousness and stand before God in robes of pure white. What an exchange. And he was, even in this state, bloodied and beaten, he is the king of the Jews. He's more than that. He's the king of kings, even in this moment. Spurgeon once said, every man ought to offer to Christ the real worship that these soldiers pretended to offer him. Now in verse 4, John reports that after the scourging, Pilate ordered that Jesus be brought out of the praetorium once more so that the Jewish delegation and the crowd could see with their own eyes that he'd been physically punished. Verse 4 says, Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold, look, the man. That's enough, right? Look at him. Look how pathetic and sad. What more do you want? Try to imagine what Jesus looks like here. Head down, body slumped. The robe draped over his shoulder. It's soaked in sweat and blood. That ridiculous crown still on his head with streaks staining his cheeks. Pilate shouts, I'm bringing him out so that you'll see and understand this man is no threat to anyone. Look at him. Behold the man. Isn't this enough? Without knowing it, Pilate actually speaks more than he knows, right? Behold the man. Behold the perfect man. 
Behold the one, the image of the invisible God, the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. That's really, the, that's the truth of it. Behold, look at him. God in the flesh. But put yourselves in the sandals of a first century Jewish man. You've wandered by the praetorium that morning. You've heard the gossip. Oh, this prisoner's over before Pilate. Let's go take a look and see what's going on. And you've heard about this Jesus of Nazareth. You've heard people say that he's a teacher of great wisdom. You've heard he's a miracle worker, maybe the Messiah of Israel. But now look at him, bleeding and pathetic. And you come to the conclusion he's just like all the rest. He's no different, just another Jewish man caught up in the machinery of Rome. He's going to be flogged, and he's going to die just like all the rest. And you wander away. Now, if there's an iota of compassion or empathy in these Jewish leaders, this whole thing would be over. But they're like sharks that now smell blood in the water, right? Verse 6, so when the chief priest and officer saw him, they saw his pathetic condition. What do they say? Crucify. Crucify. This flogging isn't going to be enough. They are beyond feeling now, and they want more. How can you look at a man who's been beaten like this and say, it's not enough? Well, Paul told us their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. John reminds us, he came to his own, but those who were his own would not receive him. Pilate for his part, is now starting to lose control of the situation. He looks around at this crowd and he sees that this thing could turn into a mob if it goes sideways. And what about Jesus? Can you imagine what he is seeing? What he is hearing? What he is feeling in this moment? Standing there in all that pain, all of humanity lining up against him, people calling for his death, feeling very alone, humanly speaking. As Isaiah prophesied, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Imagine what he's feeling in this moment. End of verse 6, Pilate hears the Jewish delegation shouting, crucify him. I, he, how can they do that? He says, look, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. How many times has he tried to, to clear Jesus' name? There's no guilt here. But verse 7, the Jews answered him, well, we have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself out to be what? The son of God. Ah, there it is. The truth finally comes out, doesn't it? The truth is finally out. This is the real indictment. This is the whole reason behind all of the intensity and all of the hatred because Jesus isn't just claiming to be the king of the Jews. He's claimed to be the son of God. So not only Messiahship, but of sharing the same name, the same nature and attributes as Yahweh himself. And we have a law, they say. It's in the Torah, in Leviticus, that such a blasphemer must die. And that's what... What makes verse 8 so interesting? Look at verse 8. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement about being the Son of God, he was even more afraid. Isn't that interesting? A Roman. Now, we looked at this a bit last week. 
Pilate's already unsettled by the whole ferocity of this situation. He's, he's met with Jesus privately. He's a little bit unsettled by Jesus, too, because he doesn't act like your typical prisoner. And now he hears this term, son of God, and Pilate is legitimately spooked. He is spooked. He's thinking, what have I gotten myself into? Remember, Romans were very superstitious. They saw omens in everything. Titles mean everything to them. So he's hearing things like gods and sons of God. And it spooks him. And to add to this, Matthew tells us that during this very final stage of the trial, that he receives a message from his wife, right? Pilate's wife sends word to him saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. She speaks more than she knows, right? That righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. So Put it all together. This, this Roman governor, superstitious man, here's king of the Jews, here's son of God, and now his wife is having these divine dreams about him, and he's very much afraid. That's what John says. So what does he do? He's like, time out. I need another private conversation with this guy. It's time to go back to the praetorium. Look at verse 9. So he entered into the praetorium again, spooked as he is, and he says to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. What's going on here? Look, Pilate knows what's happening in, in Israel. He knows where Nazareth and Galilee are. This is not a question about what's your hometown. He's looking for something deeper. Remember we saw last week that in that first conversation, Jesus had said, yes, I'm a king, Yes, I have a kingdom, but it's not of this world. I've come into this world from another realm. That factors in as well. So now Pilate's putting all the pieces together. He's like, okay, son of God, so where are you really from? But Jesus doesn't answer him. Why? Well, it's not a simple question, is it? And I think at this point, Jesus knows that Pilate is not even capable of under... If he were to begin to exposit exactly where he's from and who he is, Pilate's not even capable of understanding it. And Pilate's already shown, based on the previous conversation, that he, is in no, he has no interest for the truth. In fact, he mocks the truth. What is truth, he says. And so Jesus doesn't give him an answer. This too was prophesied, right? What does Isaiah say? He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And this frustrates Pilate, right? This is a man who always gets his way, but this prisoner will not talk. Verse 10, so Pilate said to him, you don't speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? So this is so interesting. This exchange in verses 10 and 11, what happens when two beings who have very real power butt heads with each other? What happens? See, Pilate is resorting to the one thing that Rome has and the thing that's always worked for him, and that is power and authority. And he's going to use it. Do you not understand what authority I have, Jesus? With a snap of my fingers... I can release you. Or with the snap over here, I can put you to death. So you should start talking now. It's an intimidation play, isn't it? Only Pilate's never met anyone like Jesus. He's never had a prisoner like this. But Jesus does respond to Pilate's appeal to authority, right? It's interesting how Jesus does 
answer some things and not others. But when Pilate appeals to authority, Jesus is like, oh, okay, you want to talk about that? Verse 11, Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. That power play did not work for Pilate. He says, Jesus says, procurator, you are a man with considerable power down here on the earth, but what about that, the person above you? And I'm not talking about Tiberius. Go higher. Based on what authority do you exercise your rule in this land? Can you imagine Pilate must have been taken back by this? I mean, this is a guy that had seen many, many criminals in his day. Most of them ranted and raved about their innocence. They screamed and they cursed at him. But what kind of a man calmly looks the Roman governor in the eyes and starts talking about levels of authority? He's never met anyone like Jesus. Now, who's he referring to when he says, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin? Well, who handed Jesus over to Pilate? Notice that Jesus uses a singular pronoun here. He says, he who delivered me, not they who delivered me. So he can't be talking about a group. We, we, we make a mistake when we look at the story and we start putting uh, all of the guilt and responsibility on a collective group and say, it was the Jews or it was the Romans or it was the Sanhedrin. It's not a group here that Jesus has in mind. Now, we can't be certain who he's talking about, but I think two candidates make sense, either Judas or Caiaphas. That's who he's referring to. You can make a good case for both of those men, but also see that Jesus is not absolving Pilate of blame here. He's just saying that there's somebody more guilty than you. Pontius Pilate will answer for his part. This is the most grievous sin of all time, and Pilate will answer for this, but I think we can agree to at least some measure there's ignorance involved here. After all, what does a Roman know about Messiahship? What does a Roman know about salvation in Yahweh or a unique one and only son of God? There's some ignorance for him, but not Judas and Caiaphas. They knew the scriptures. They knew the prophecies. They had heard this man teach. They had seen the miracles. They cannot plead ignorance. They're guilty and they're without excuse. So Pilate will answer, but there's one who answers for even a greater crime and I believe that's Judas and or Caiaphas. So the second conversation in private in the praetorium ends in the same way as the first one. Pilate is frustrated, only now he's afraid as well. And he just heard authority from above. What is this guy talking about? What authority? Who's higher than Tiberius? He's afraid now as well. And now, with, without resolving anything, he's got to go back out in front of these Jews once more and give an answer. He's, Pilate's got to be thinking at this point, why can't I make this go away? This is a man who solved problems all the time and he cannot fix this. Verse 12. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be king opposes Caesar. Every time he tries to release Jesus, the crowd won't let him. I, I count six times, six different attempts he makes to release Jesus. And the most amazing thing is, is he has the power to do it. He's the prefect of all Judea. He can release Jesus, but he's a coward and he won't do it. His leverage is melting away. 
over the Jewish leaders. And with the leverage going away, his courage is going away as well. His, his desire to stand on the principle of justice is flying out the window as we read. The reality is, because of this leverage problem he has, this sticky situation, he has given over authority to the Jewish leadership. He is not willing to stand and do the right thing. So, naturally, the Jews keep pressing the issue. Now, they had made the accusation of blasphemy, but that's a religious argument, and that did not make sense to a Roman prefect. So now they turn to politics. Ah, right? The trump card. They turn to politics. If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. That is the mic drop moment of this entire back and forth. Blasphemy didn't, didn't move the needle for Pilate. But this one does. Politics. You're no friend of Caesar. If you don't get rid of this guy who claims to be a king, you're opposed to Caesar too. And they'll come for you. That's what he's saying here. They're not even trying to veil the threat. It's obvious. We will make sure that Tiberius hears that you've, taken, you've allowed this man who claims to be a king to run free in Judea. And don't be fooled. We know how human nature works, don't we? We know from our political world here in America that leverage means everything. When your enemies find a weak spot, they will exploit it and this is what the chief priests of Israel are doing by playing this card. They had Pilate over a barrel, and he knew it. He had lost this game of high-stakes poker. Humanly speaking, this was the moment that Jesus' fate is sealed, the political moment. Pilate's worn down. Seriously, he's worn out. And he's been outmaneuvered, and he knows it. So in verse 13, he just gives in. He heads towards his official judgment seat to render the verdict, and reluctantly he decides, I have no choice. I have to give them what they want. But don't be surprised as he does this, he's going to throw in a few more digs on the way out the door. Verse 13, Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, and he sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. He went upon his platform, he sat down on the bema seat, and he rendered his verdict. It says, now it was the day of the preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. Why does he say that again? Okay, people of Israel, this is what you want, right? Take a look at him one more time. Take a look at your pathetic king. And the people look up at Jesus, who's standing there silently, bloody and helpless, with this fake crown still on his head. This is a parting shot at the entire nation of Israel. We're Rome. We have the power. This is the best you'll ever get in terms of having a king. Look at him. Behold your king. So they cried out, verse 15. I mean, the Jewish leadership, they are, they are single-minded in their goal, aren't they? So they cry out, away with him, away with him, crucifying him, crucify him. And the language is, they kept on shouting. They're now drowning Pilate out. Away with him. Kill him. Have you ever seen one of those videos on social media of a mob that just gets worked up into a frenzy and you're like, they're unhinged. They have lost all sense. That's what's going on here. They're acting like brute animals now. We want blood. More. Give us more. 
Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? This is the final taunt. He looked at the crowd. He says, say it to me one more time. You want me to crucify your king. Say it. And they do. He says, fine, that's is on you now. This is on you. And then comes the statement that blows my mind. Every time I read this, it blows my mind. You want evidence that these Jewish leaders have become unhinged in their bloodlust? It's even more. They are driven by Satan in this moment. The chief priest answered and said what? We have no king but Caesar. In one final act of rebellion against Yahweh, in their insatiable lust to get rid of Jesus, they literally turn their backs on God and they renounce their messianic hope. We bow before Caesar. He's our king. That is blasphemy, folks. That is blasphemy. And so Matthew tells us that after this, Pilate made a physical public declaration that this execution was not what he wanted and that he is not responsible for it. He took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves and listen to this stunning statement. And the people said, and, and when I read people, I read again, the chief priests, his blood shall be on us and on our children. And wow, the prophetic implications of that ignorant statement have become historically monstrous. Historically monstrous. It has led to century after century of anti-Semitism and Jewish suffering at the hands of Gentile kings and Gentile armies and Gentile dictators. That's for another day, but that's a history lesson in and of itself. Now, was Pilate able to wash away his guilt? Not even close. He's rejected the truth. He's rejected Jesus. He's acted with cowardice. And no water, no matter how symbolic, can wash away sin. Ironically, the only thing that could have washed away his sin on that day was the blood of the man he was about to execute. That's it. And so Matthew wraps up the story with this. He says, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus scourged, the second scourging, the brutal one that just about killed him, After having Jesus scourged, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. And we'll pick up on that on Friday. Now, as we sort of close the book on this trial, and we begin to consider Good Friday, just five days away now, I just really quickly want to look back at some of the characters involved here and what we can learn. How do we see ourselves in these characters? Annas, Judas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, Pontius Pilate, the Roman soldiers, Barabbas. Each one of them represents various aspects of fallen humanity. Imagine a close friend and a partner in the ministry who for 30 pieces of silver hands his master over to the enemy after this man has done nothing but show him love and teach him and reveal the goodness and grace of the Father to him. Imagine it. But greed and betrayal are marks of fallen humanity. It's all around us. Imagine men who are so powerful within a religious community that they can say and do almost anything without consequence. They can bend the law and ignore all the standards and produce false witnesses and sacrifice innocent life for the sake of self-preservation. Imagine it. 
but corruption and injustice are marks of fallen humanity. Imagine men who will stand in public and blatantly lie while at the same time claiming to be religious guides for all the people around them, men willing to sell their souls to the state as they blaspheme God just to get rid of a man who threatens their status. But lying and hypocrisy are marks of fallen humanity. Imagine a man placed in a role where he has power over an entire nation, but he's so weak in character that he rules and judges out of constant fear for his job, his title, and his honor. So much so that he's willing to torture an innocent man and send him off to an agonizing death just to slip out of a political trap. But preserving power at the cost of one's integrity is a mark of fallen humanity. Imagine a group of men tasked to police the streets of Jerusalem and to keep the peace, but rather than serving with honor, they choose to mock and abuse those in their custody for sport, to humiliate people as a means of entertainment. Failing to steward the public trust is a mark of fallen humanity. All of these characters represent fallen humanity, and they serve as great warnings for all of humanity, including us, including those of us who have trusted in Christ as Savior and Lord. How often are we tempted to compromise in our lives, to give up our standards and our convictions, to give up our integrity when we get put in certain situations because we haven't abided in the vine? We haven't been in fellowship with others in the church? How quickly can the ugly side of our character rise to the surface when we're not guarding our hearts, when we're not consistently ingesting the word of God? These are warnings for us as well. So as we step back and we, we sum up this account, six phases of one extended trial, we realize that this story of the passion is not just history, it's bigger than that. It's, it's meta-history. It's the story of humanity in a nutshell just in these chapters, because the entire human race is guilty. Jew, Gentile, you, me, we're all guilty before God. We all bear responsibility for nailing him to that cross. That's why we often sing these words. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. We're all guilty, the entire human race. The whole world stood against Jesus on this Friday morning. Jew and Gentile, you and me. And over and against all the evil and the sin in the story, and it is everywhere, stands Jesus, the King of truth and the King of glory, veiled in human flesh, humbly submitting himself to the Father's will, humbly submitting himself to the sinful actions of wicked human beings that he himself created, silently enduring all of the pain and all of the humiliation for you and for me. There stands Jesus, who in the words of Peter, while being reviled, did not revile in return, while suffering, uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Friends, nobody comes out of this story looking good but one man. Nobody but Jesus comes out of this story looking good. Great sins and terrible evils throughout this passion narrative. Yet we affirm this morning for those of us who have trusted in Christ alone that by his death, we find that there is grace that is greater than all of our sin. 
because he went to that cross. And I'll just close where I started this morning with Barabbas because of all the characters, you and I are Barabbas more than any other in this story. Barabbas should have been crucified, not Jesus. It was Barabbas' guilt that deserved to be punished, not the Lord's. And that is our story, too. Jesus bore the guilt. He bore the shame. He bore the curse that Barabbas deserved. He deserved it. And we deserve it. And what did Barabbas receive? What did Barabbas get? His chains were released. He was set free. Does that have a familiar ring to it? The Prince of Peace died as a substitute for a rebel. That's us. That's our story. Second thing, Barabbas didn't do a single thing to earn it. In fact, if anything, he was pardoned because of how notoriously evil he was. But he did nothing, did nothing to earn this mercy. It was freely given to him. He was destined for death, but he got a full pardon instead. And at the end of this day, he was no longer condemned. That's our story. Because of the death of Christ. What do we deserve? Death. What do we receive? Righteousness and eternal life. That is the great exchange that the gospel tells us. He takes our punishment, we get his righteousness. Never forget that. Listen, Barabbas was a criminal. He has no right to be remembered at all. He has no right to be held up as an example of divine grace, but that's the whole point, neither do you or I. Neither do we. But Christ loved us enough to submit to the Father's will and to walk that path to Golgotha for us. And now our chains are gone. And now we've been set free. Praise the Lord.